And we had four individuals who come at Lorraine in terms of trying to provide us with missing or elusive information and insight, <clears throat> which is key to essential knowledge and understanding. And that first will be Sarah Lee Whitson, uh, who uh, first met around four years ago at a reception at the Embassy of Bahrain, in which we chatted for a few minutes, exchanged cards, and she said, do you think I could ever participate in one of your events? And I said, yes, this is one of those events. She is a leader and a profound one in Human Rights uh, Watch. We also have Dave Roach at the end of the table, from my right, your left, who is an alumnus of the National Council's Malone Fellows Program in Arab and Islamic uh, Studies, and who has served as the Director of Arabian Peninsula Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of uh, Defense. And then we will have Paul Sullivan, uh, who is peripatetic, a grown-up word, out-of-town language I didn't used to have, in the sense that he is at the Department of Defense's National Defense Uni University and in a civilian capacity teaching topics related to security uh, in Arabia and the Gulf at Georgetown's Waltz Graduate School of Foreign Service. And our fourth speaker will be Ambassador Ron Newman, who's no stranger to anyone here who follows foreign policy and international relations and American diplomacy. He was a former ambassador to Algeria, a former ambassador to Afghanistan, a former ambassador to Bahrain. And he is one of two father-son <coughs> uh, arrangements in the course of American history where a father served as an ambassador to the same country. His father, Robert Newman, who was on a, a founding international advisory board as ambassador to Afghanistan, also to Morocco and to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We'll start with... Ms. Whitson. Thank you, and thank you for having me, and I'm glad to be here four years after our conversation, so it only took four years. Uh, I'm going to make some impromptu remarks because I wasn't aware we had to have any <coughs> remarks, but that's okay. That will make it a more lively and less boring uh, presentation, I hope. Uh, I guess I'm going to focus uh, on uh, really the human rights profile of Bahrain, of, uh, of the country, of what we've seen in the developments over the past two years, uh, which uh, has seen Bahrain caught up in the momentous uprisings that have swept the entire Middle East uh, and North Africa. And I think of note, particularly in Bahrain, is its feature as the only monarchy uh, that had faced uh, the, the mass popular uprisings we saw and otherwise uh, uh, secular pretend uh, Republican governments like Egypt and uh, uh, Yemen. Um, and uh, uh, I guess I think what's interesting about Bahrain from my perspective, uh, perspective where um, uh, my division, my organization, I cover 17 countries uh, in the Middle East and North Africa, 
um, is what I think is a somewhat uh, special and unique profile uh, of uh, Bahrain in the Gulf uh, as actually uh, one of the countries uh, that has and had uh, a great deal of dynamism, a fairly well-developed civil society, uh, diverse uh, views in the media, uh, real political opposition uh, that, you know, in different periods of time either found itself in jail and repressed or at other periods of openness and uh, reform uh, found itself more participating in the political process. Um, and as a, as a government that Human Rights Watch uh, dealt with, I always considered uh, Bahrain as a role model in the Gulf, in the region, uh, where we had relatively easy access to the country to do our investigations, to meet with government officials, uh, and really felt that there uh, was a tier in the government, not just at the highest level, at the ministerial level, but at the middle levels, uh, that were really professional civil servants capable of having conversations of the nitty-gritty uh, of, of, of policy. And honestly, that's not something one would find in other Gulf countries like the Emirates uh, or uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia, of course, which remains extremely closed, difficult to access, and not really interested in uh, engagement uh, at the level at which we had uh, uh, relationships with Bahrain. And I think that openness and willingness to have a dialogue, including on difficult <clears throat> issues, uh, was a hallmark uh, of the country uh, and, and reflected the diversity of political <clears throat> views and, and an awareness on the part of the government that they needed to be engaged internationally, they needed to be engaged domestically with their own population in order to sustain themselves as ultimately uh, a monarchy um, uh, that had relatively absolute power over its population. Sadly, I think a lot of that has changed, and we are seeing Bahrain in a period of uh, clamping down, uh, shutting down, uh, uh, shutting down internally, of course, very <coughs> dramatically, but also shutting down externally. Uh, and uh, I think that this uh, closing, this closure of the government to uh, uh, discussion, dialogue, and, and real commitment to reform is the most uh, distressing and disappointing uh, development in the country right now, uh, because I think it is the uh, uh, ultimately what will determine whether or not uh, Bahrain uh, uh, manages to resume any kind of normalcy in its uh, country uh, so that it's no longer under permanent lockdown with checkpoints everywhere and a state of unbelievable tension and hostility in the country uh, to you know, some sort of relative political compromise uh, of politically negotiated outcome, perhaps where it was uh, five or seven years ago. Uh, and, and right now, I don't see uh, the process of the national dialogue as really holding out hope uh, for uh, that kind of uh, uh, reconciliation, if, if we can call it, if not actual reform. Um, I was recently in Bahrain uh, earlier this year, and uh, you know, on the one hand, it's again sort of the two faces of Bahrain. It's, it's great that the Bahraini government finally allowed us to come back into the country. Um, but at the same time, it's so disappointing and distressing um, that it took us so long to manage to get the approvals and permissions and so forth uh, to come back into the country. Uh, whereas journalists and, 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 and human rights professionals in the past would just show up at the airport and get a visa, as we do in Egypt or, or Lebanon or Jordan. Uh, Bahrain has now put itself on the side of the ledger where permission may or may not be granted and more likely not granted. Uh, journalists, uh, 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 UN officials, uh, uh, human rights uh, organizations routinely uh, refused uh, access. Uh, 
Uh, and so in that context of the visit uh, to uh, Bahrain in March, uh, we had uh, uh, rather high-level meetings with the Ministry of Interior, with the Attorney General, with the uh, uh, Commander of the Police and Commander of Security Forces. We were also, I think, remarkably allowed access to jail prison uh, where uh, uh, the leading political activists and human rights activists uh, continue to be detained. Uh, and you know, Bahrain being Bahrain, it's it's very close to everything. It's it's a you know small prison, and um, you know just gives you a sense of really what a tiny, tiny country this is, uh, and how everyone really knows each other. And so everyone in the government knows all the political activists who are in jail, uh, and you know it's it's almost a surreal state of affairs. Um, and I think you know the the you know. I'm sure everyone knows and what happened two years ago in the Arab uprisings where we probably had the greatest per capita uh, participation of a country's citizenry uh, in public demonstrations against the government. I don't think, uh, you know, I, I, maybe people were broader historical views here than mine. I don't know that there's been an example of more than 50% of a country's citizens uh, taking to the streets uh, to participate in demonstrations calling for reforms, uh, as some calling for an overthrow uh, of the king, uh, uh, anywhere else, certainly not in the Middle East. I mean, if you think of the uprising in Egypt that brought about the downfall of Mubarak, I doubt very much that that was more than 5% of the population who were participating in mass protests. Uh, Tunisia, even smaller, Syria, even smaller, and so forth. And so you had a remarkable popular uprising, uh, probably you know, a historic, a world-leading popular uprising in terms of the percentage of the population involved. Uh, and you had a, a massive clampdown, a massive shutdown of this popular uprising uh, when the government realized that the protesters were not going to go away, when the government realized uh, that the protesters were making demands that went beyond what they found tolerable or acceptable, <coughs> including calling in some uh, cases for the king to step down and to leave. Um, the government responded with brute force, using, uh, uh, using its force, using its power, uh, to uh, 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 dissolve the protests um, with uh, hundreds uh, injured, uh, killed, thousands arrested, detained. You know, I would say Bahrain was completely thrown upside down and thrown asunder. Uh, mass arrests of teachers, doctors, nurses, civil servants, people fired from their jobs uh, if they were seen as being uh, um, uh, part of the uh, popular uprising movement. Um, and, you know, I, I think, again, I'm expecting everybody here actually knows what happened uh, in, in, in the course of those events. They were pretty well documented on television uh, and uh, was a very fairly well-televised revolution uh, and uprising. Um, again, perhaps showing the two faces uh, of Bahrain and perhaps uh, uh, indicative of the extent to which Bahrain may have accepted uh, advice from its uh, various political advisors, uh, uh, many of whom are, are American and British. Um, it agreed to appoint this Bahrain Independent Commission of Inquiry. Uh, and I, I say this because I think it is remarkable that Bahrain, uh, the Bahraini government agreed uh, to appoint uh, uh, an independent commission of inquiry to investigate the government's wrongdoing uh, during the uprisings, specifically focusing on the excessive use of force. Uh, and then the king accepted all of the recommendations, uh, the two key among them being accountability at the highest echelons for those responsible for the failures of the security forces in the uh, extremely violent uh, crushing of the popular uprising. Um, and, of course, uh, the uh, uh, calling for the release of the jailed political activists and human rights activists uh, in the country. 
Uh, I think those were the two most important recommendations of uh, the, the Bicky uh, Commission, which the government accepted. Um, and uh, sadly, we recently concluded that Bahrain has made no progress on those two key reforms. Uh, impunity, uh, uh, lack of accountability at the highest levels remains uh, the rule uh, in Bahrain. And the fact of the matter is that notwithstanding enormous amounts of money, uh, uh, enormous amounts of uh, uh, advertising uh, uh, to a so-called reform process in Bahrain, the fact is that all of the government officials, all of the security officials, who they admit made failures, uh, made mistakes in the policing, in this massively violent crackdown against this popular uprising, not one of them uh, has been prosecuted or jailed. Uh, and uh, much less you know, even reassigned or demoted or, or transferred from their current positions. Um, so to expect uh, the uh, population uh, in Bahrain to believe uh, that there has been accountability for the policing failures for the government's excessive use of force, when not a single government official above the lowly level of battalion commander uh, has been held responsible or, or found liable for any wrongdoing, uh, is, is pretty hard, hard to stomach and hard to imagine. This failure in accountability is, I think, the greatest failing right now uh, of the government, and why it will make it very hard for them to persuade the majority of its population uh, to believe uh, that the national dialogue and, and reform has meaning. I think the second most important uh, factor, which of course President Obama alluded to in a speech that he made, was that it's hard to have a political dialogue when the country's opposition remains in jail. Uh, the Bickey Commission recommended that people jailed for their political activism, for their political views, for their political expression, including the, uh, the country's leading opposition figures and human rights activists, uh, must be released. Instead, uh, uh, Bahrain's highest court, its Court of Cassation, uh, uh, reaffirmed the sentences of 13 of these leading activists, uh, and in fact gave them, uh, several of them life sentences. Again, uh, we now have a second tier of political opposition who's engaged in this national dialogue, uh, but they don't believe, and the majority of the population does not believe, uh, that there can be real political dialogue while their political leaders remain unjustly imprisoned. Uh, I think in terms of where uh, uh, the U.S. government is focused and, and, and the U.S. Uh, considers uh, 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 how to deal with the situation, I guess one thing I would recommend, and, and I thought that uh, there was sort of a shifting in understanding of this uh, in, in, during the uprisings, particularly given President Obama's relations, is that the U.S. government's relations cannot just be uh, with Arab governments, particularly Arab governments that are not representative of their population and that are not the product of any democratic process. And it's very, very dangerous uh, to uh, uh, see American relations through the lens point of how many graduates of the governing undemocratic, unrepresentative elite graduated from U.S. universities uh, because that's really a very, very thin, thin shell of eggs uh, to put our, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm messing the, the analogy, but you get, my, uh, you get my thing. And I would hope that when we think about National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, we don't think of it in terms of National Council on, on, uh, on Arab uh, elite, non-representative, uh, non-democratic government relations, but we really think about what is our relationship with the Arab people, what is our relationship with the majority of the Bahraini people, the majority of, 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 of Shia population, who feel deeply aggrieved uh, by a government, uh, by a monarchy, uh, by a king who has failed them uh, and continues to fail them by proposing an outrageous uh, NGO law 
that will abolish uh, the vibrant civil society, the vibrant uh, 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 community of, 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 of independent voices in the country. Um, again, in, in stark contrast to claims of reform, uh, that continues to use tear gas uh, in uh, uh, neighborhoods in, in Shia uh, villages as a form of collective punishment, literally raining down hundreds and hundreds of canisters of tear gas uh, in entire neighborhoods uh, as punishment for a protest that might erupt in that neighborhood. Uh, continues to use arbitrary arrests, mass arrests uh, in uh, uh, Shia areas. Um, and, you know, really makes it, again, hard to win the credibility, to reestablish its credibility as a fair government, as a government that truly represents uh, uh, the vast majority of its population. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And next uh, speaker is Colonel uh, Hayden DeRoche. All right. Go ahead. Thank you, sir. Um, when I saw the distinguished members of the panel here, uh, I got a little inferiority complex, and I said to myself, now I know how Zeppo Marx must feel. <laughs> but uh, hearing Sarah speak, I, I think I'm Gummo Marx now. So uh, my, my remarks will be brief. I asked Dr. Anthony what I should speak about, and he said, I don't care, just keep your gut in. So... Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to make two points. One theoretical and one factual. The first is theoretical, Sarah's touched on it. U.S. foreign policy is often characterized by a tension between values and interests. Uh, this is especially so in the Gulf where we have great national security interests, in pursuit of which we ally ourselves with a variety of monarchies, some of which have various democratic uh, institutions or trappings, as Sarah said, but none of these meet any meaningful definition of democracy. None of them. This attention is particularly heightened in Bahrain, which is the only Gulf country where a minority regime rules over a majority. However, our relationship has been strong for a number of years, as Dr. Anthony said. It's proven invaluable in various conflicts, and it's our longest-lasting military host in the region. That's very, very important. It cannot be, it, it cannot be underestimated. It can be perhaps overstated. Those who advocate a value-driven U.S. foreign policy often point to the importance of soft power, the use of cultural, economic, and social forces to achieve U.S. policy goals. Now, I come from a military background. As a matter of fact, um, I just realized when Dr. Anthony was speaking, I'm an adjunct professor at the Command and General Staff College where King Hamid went. So if I'm ever presented to him, perhaps I'll correct his homework, but I don't know if he'll accept that. Um, I appreciate the importance of soft power. I flew on a midnight flight on Turkish Airways from Istanbul to Tashkent, and the in-flight movie was Moneyball. Okay? Now, I'm pretty sure I was the only person on that plane who has ever played baseball, and the plane was packed. There might have been six people who even seen a baseball game, but the passengers loved it because they'll watch anything with Brad Pitt. Um, how we convert that soft power into something that advances our security goals, however, that's, that's beyond me. Um, hard power is the more traditional element of military power. Sometimes it's employed directly, other times it's indirectly. My favorite example is in 1949, the Soviet Union was making advances on Turkey, trying to internationalize, for which you can regain control of the Bosphorus, and the Turkish ambassador to Washington died. And so President Truman said, he's our guest, it's our responsibility to send him back to Turkey. And so they put him aboard the USS Missouri, where the Japanese had surrendered after we nuked them. And the USS Missouri took his body back to Istanbul. Now that symbolism was lost on nobody, I can assure you. The hard power presence in Bahrain 
comes with a significant soft power asset, the Bahrain School run by the Department of Defense. This is an elementary and high school originally set up to educate the children of Navy personnel assigned to Bahrain. It now takes fee-paying students from Bahrain and has 710 students from over 40 nationalities. Uh, the Crown Prince is an alumnus. Uh, this may reach the veneer that Sarah spoke of, the, the elite veneer, but um, you know, I haven't seen a successful outreach in a way that advances U.S. goals to the, to the broad to the broad population yet. So, you know, maybe the veneer is a way to deal with. Finally, let me make a factual point. I'd like to make a small point here about the U.S. Naval Base in Bahrain. Every news article on Bahrain makes references to this base, and it leads many to conclude that the facility resembles something like Subic Bay or Long Beach, an enclosed base with dry docks, extensive warehouses, and piers. The commonly cited figure for the U.S. military presence in Bahrain is about 5,000. Uh, both of these are misleading ideas. The naval base, in fact, is about 60 acres of headquarters, dormitories, a commissary, and a gym. It's landlocked. It looks more like an industrial park than a military facility. If you walk around it and look el elsewhere, and you're used to seeing naval bases, you're going to expect to see a tattoo parlor, dry cleaning shop, you know, bars, and a bunch of squids running around. That is not the case. You would not notice it. It looks like an industrial park. Uh, the Bahrain School occupies another 28 acres. The Congressional Research Service says there are 5,000 sailors assigned to Bahrain, but the Navy website says that there are 4,400 service members, civilians, and dependents. Those are, that's a very, very significant difference. My relatively uneducated guess is that there are probably no more than 1,500 service members that are assigned to Bahrain, the restaurant ships that rotate into the area and rotate out of the area. The only access to the sea is a leased 70-acre compound at Mina Salman, which has one pier and several warehouses. Now, since we're in the House Appropriations Committee, I look back over the last five years of military construction requests, and what it shows is that an, an explosive ordnance disposal and a Navy special warfare facility, a small indoor range, have been built. But again, these are relatively small facilities. The military capability of this headquarters, which is just a command and control headquarters, could be relocated almost seamlessly aboard a ship to another place in the Gulf, or indeed to Norfolk. And that would be almost seamlessly. Uh, there would be no diminution in command and control. There would be a small decrease in logistic support. If other Gulf allies you know, would allow this sort of thing to happen, it could be done seamlessly through another port like Jebel Ali, if politically uh, that was acceptable. This is not a large base. The real value of the naval base in Bahrain has been publicly stated by at least three former Fifth Fleet commanders in my presence to be the school. Paradoxically, it's this school, made possible by the presence of probably less than 1,500 permanent party Navy staff, that is probably America's foremost soft power institution in a region that's screaming for a different approach. It's a serendipitous fact that the most enduring of American institution of hard power in the Gulf, probably the most enduring uh, Institution of American Hard Power from American University, Cairo, all the way to Singapore, is the, has spawned the most valuable soft power institution in the Middle East. So at least in this instance, our values are advanced, even in a difficult situation, by the infrastructure, which advances our security interests. And my sneaky professorial point there is that it's a false paradox to pair them off against each other. I welcome your most challenging and difficult questions, although I have to warn you in advance that I do cry if the question's too much. Thank you. <laughs> uh, regarding the uh, questions after the uh, next two uh, that should have been placed on your seat, 
four by six or five by seven card uh, on which we invite you to write your question. Uh, we don't do declaratory sentences in terms of common uh, tailors, but we do uh, try to welcome as many questions as possible. And as many of the questions that can be a W question, who, what, why, where, when, and sometimes even whether, those kinds of questions don't have a yes or no answer. Uh, they are substantively richer than a yes or no answer. And the most difficult of all questions in matters pertaining to policy as they affect uh, public affairs is the H question, how? Uh, because there are no um, difficult answers to most questions, let alone easy ones. Uh, we turn now to Dr. Paul Sullivan. Well, good afternoon. I first have to give the usual caveats. Uh, my opinions are mine alone do not represent those of the National Defense University, the U.S. government, Georgetown, or anyone else I'm involved with. Uh, in response to a recent activity focused on an opposition leader in Bahrain, a minister from Iran said Bahrain should expect the unexpected, an obvious threat. Iran has been trying to take back Bahrain for, oh, since 1798 when the Khalifas came onto the island. I saw a video the other day of one of the opposition leaders where he drummed up the crowd to start chanting death to America. That's not comforting. There's a lot more going on here than it seems. Bahrain is a small place, but it's a very complicated place. Also, uh, as Sarah mentioned, it's an uprising of possibly more than 50% of the population. What would happen in this country, or any country, if 50% of the population went into an insurrection? Anyone remember Kent State? How many people would expect the U.S. military to hit the streets if over 50% of this country went into an uprising? How would the police react, the FBI, just about everyone else? have to put this in some perspective. There's no doubt that a stable and more Iran-independent Bahrain is crucial for the stability, peace, and prosperity of the region. It also is clear that many parties involved in the strife in the country need to find some common ground to get to guess on the important issues. The problem isn't just one side, it's both sides. There's really no discussion going on here. Get to Yes. There's an important book called Getting to Yes. Maybe we should hand it out to just about everyone involved in the Arab storm. I don't call it the Arab Spring. I don't see a lot of flowers blooming in this. All of this and more are important for oil and gas trade globally as well as the stability for the region. A more stable and prosperous Bahrain is also important for the economic infrastructure, transport, services, and financial development of the GCC and especially its neighbors, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, very much interconnected with these two countries. The movement of the Saudi Arabian National Guard, the UAE police, and others into Bahrain was no accident. 
This was part of the Peninsula Shield Agreement amongst the GCC states. It's rarely used. But the threats to Bahrain at the time seemed severe enough to its government to ask for that help. They were overwhelmed in the financial district in Manama, which is a lifeline of the economy of the country. Saudi Arabia and Bahrain are connected by the causeway, we all know that, but also connected in the future with railways and other transportation networks, air networks and so forth. 40 to 50,000 trucks cross that, cars and trucks cross that causeway every day. There's also an important oil connection. Bahrain and Saudi Arabia share an oil field, Abu Safa. Crude oil is transported to Bahrain from Saudi Arabia, about 220,000 barrels a day. This oil is refined in Bahrain and re-exported by Bahrain. Its main export markets are not the United States. U.S. economic connections with Bahrain are limited. Its main export markets are to mostly to the rest of the Middle East, North Africa, the Far East, Africa, the EU, and India. Southeast Asia. My guess is a whole bunch of it may go to the Fifth Fleet, but there are no data to be found on that. And believe me, I did some digging on it. There are plans to expand and renew this old pipeline. There are also plans to refit and increase the size of that refinery. Saudi Arabia and Bahrain are getting closer by the day. And one of the reasons is they're getting pushed together by another country by things that are happening in Bahrain. Oil production, refined goods and exports of those create about 80% of the Bahraini government's revenues. Again, I'm an economist, so I'll throw a bunch of numbers out at you. Put it in a little bit of perspective. Oil is about 70% of their revenue. So if this oil connection with Saudi Arabia is somehow damaged, that this could have considerable implications for the Bahraini government. It's also about 60% of Bahrain's export revenues, this refined product, which is actually refined imported oil from Saudi Arabia. Oil is an important part of the Bahraini economy, even though it has tiny reserves and only produces about 42,000 barrels a day. That's probably a few oil fields down in Texas. Bahrain is, produces most of its natural gas, but it's really, it has an increase in natural gas that's getting somewhat out of control by the use of its aluminum factories, another major export of Bahrain, petrochemicals, which they want to develop with the Saudis and others, and the steel industry. Part of the problem with that is the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and many others in the Gulf are focusing on the same industries, and they think that's diversification. If every one of your neighbors is diversifying in the same direction, you're not diversifying at all. But everyone has hopped onto the bandwagon of aluminum finance uh, refineries and petrochemicals. Massive amounts of money are being put in that direction. This will lead to economic instability, certainly somewhere in the future, because diversification is supposed to be focused on getting rid of the volatility of prices. If you were to take a look at the price of aluminum, of oil and the uh, indices of the financial markets of the Gulf after 2008, you'd see this is not diversification at all. Bahrain is looking to be a transport and processing hub for the northern Gulf. 
It's put significant investments and will put more into port facilities, road networks, electric networks, connecting in with the rest of the GCC. This is a small country, but it's important. It's important for the region. It's important for security. It's important for infrastructure. It's important for so many things. These large ports, roads, railroads, water, and other investments are also fairly open targets for those who might have ill intent. It could be a great benefit to all the GCT to coordinate their investments and coordinate security of these investments, pool their efforts. Look at not just comparative advantage, but dynamic comparative advantage. Focus on where they could change their economies toward a better future. Just hopping under the bandwagon doesn't help. I was talking with a senior Emirati official a few days ago. He was quite proud of their aluminum industry. And I'm wondering, what would that aluminum industry be like if many other countries jumped on the bandwagon as well? The price of aluminum is based in London. Raw aluminum is based in London. There is no control if you're a small producer. You react to the markets. Also, the industries of development in Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar, and Bahrain are based on low natural gas prices and low oil prices through transfer mechanisms from the government. These are hugely subsidized. If those subsidies are taken off for whatever reason, many of these industries will not be sustainable. At some time in the future, these gas prices will go up. But the real value of product, and Bahrain and the others are looking at this, is through processing it, not just creating the raw aluminum, not just creating these processed oils and so forth. And also, when it comes to the aluminum, the U.S. is not a big market. The FDA agreement really is hardly effective. It's more of a political soft power act than something to help a large trading partner, an investment partner, Bahrain. It's not. Most of Bahrain is focused on the Middle East and South Asia, Southeast Asia. Finance is about 25% of their GDP. And interesting enough, Bahrain is the number two place for Islamic finance. That's fascinating. That also shows another portion of hope that one could look at for the future of Bahrain. Yes, we do have uh, the Fifth Fleet there. I think it's a bit more complicated than just uh, putting people into ships and, and C-5 transports and saying goodbye. It's not that easy. And I understand that a senior, former senior leader has mentioned that as a possibility. Um, I don't think the Saudis would be particularly happy about that. It would also be an indication, uh, one more indication, that the United States is willing to throw other leaders under the bus. It would also be an open door for Iran and others to get a foothold in a country that is vital to the region. Vital economically, vital for security reasons, vital for infrastructure, for transport, and so forth. And also, Saudi Arabia has its concerns about its eastern province. Qatif, right across the, the, the causeway. Go across the causeway, bang a right, and you're right into trouble land for Saudi Arabia. If uh, Iran gets a greater foothold there, that becomes even more difficult for the Saudis. 
Bahrain is a major non-NATO ally and has been since 1991. It's a vital part of the U.S. presence and staying power in the Gulf. I think I should probably wrap up. Is that right, Pat? Threatening Bahrain with our FTA with them is an inappropriate action. That's why I put the caveats in the front. A lot of people in the government probably disagree with me. It will not be the first time, and I assure you it will not be the last time that people in this government will disagree with me. We are not a large trading partner with Bahrain. The FDA was supposed to have helped Bahrain to move into better frameworks for trade, investment, and yes, labor and other economic relations. However, we should take care not to put too much emphasis on one side of the agreement to the detriment of our overall relations with Bahrain and possibly to the detriment of the stability of the region. The U.S. may also want to start thinking about how we are losing our clout in the region and what we may do to retain that. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And I wind up speaking before we begin our discussion and Q&A is uh, Ambassador Ron Newman. I think I neglected just, I think I neglected to say uh, when I made reference earlier to Ambassador Newman's uh, three ambassadorships to Afghanistan, Algeria, and Bahrain, that he is also president of the American Academy of Diplomacy. No small job. Well, thank you, John. I, I feel somewhat overintroduced. Um, I remember once when uh, Amr Musa came as foreign minister and uh, had a very, very fulsome introduction. And at the end of it, he got up and he said, well, in that introduction, there was some exaggeration, but not more than is acceptable. Uh, <laughs> Bahrain is a complex place. I remember when I was first appointed there, <coughs> wondering with my wife whether, uh, after being a deputy assistant secretary, I was going to be bored. I was never bored. Um, it has the most amazingly complicated politics for a small place that I have ever seen. It, it may be some of the most complicated politics any place, but certainly uh, per capita, it is, uh, it is really quite fascinating. I want to come at this from two perspectives as a former diplomat, and I don't have to say I don't speak for anybody because I no longer am associated with anybody in the government, except perhaps the American Academy, for whom I do not speak. Uh, but as a former diplomat, let me come at this from two joined perspectives. One is that of U.S. policy, and the other is the realm of the possible. Now. Policy starts from interest, that's not a brilliant statement. And as, uh, as Dave said, we have interests that go in different directions. We have an interest in human rights and democracy, simply because the American people demand that we have such interests. If for no other reasons of higher moral purpose, we couldn't escape them in our politics. We also have a very legitimate interest in oil, in the base, in national security, 
And I say it's a legitimate interest because the flow of oil and our strategic relationships in the Gulf affect the American economy. They affect the pocketbook <coughs> of everyone in this room. And it is legitimate for a power to protect its own people. And that's what those interests translate to, is protecting our own people. Now, the fact that there is tension in our interests is also normal and legitimate. And one of the problems of policy is that it is rarely a matter of putting one interest over another and therefore sacrificing the second, but one of advancing multiple interests that pull against each other. Now, policy has to come not only from interests, but it has to stem from some hopefully realistic understanding of the situation in which one makes policy. We tend to ignore that a lot in American policymaking. We tend to go from what we want to what we think we should do without too much attention to whether it's likely to work or not. But Bahrain is certainly a place where one has to look in some detail at the situation. Um, that there has been repression and that there have been violations is clear, and the Basuni Commission has documented many of them, and King Ahmed has accepted that that report is true. But there are other aspects to the situation which are also extremely important. There is the deep communal split in Bahrain. There has always been a communal split, but it is now far deeper and more bitter than it ever was in the past. It has enormous social implications, it has political implications. It is important, however one comes out on the policy, to understand that there is not just one people in opposition to a government, uh, a la Tunisia, but in fact that there are two communities, and that the communities are now in deeper opposition than ever before. And the result of that is that one cannot simply talk about democratic reform in a sort of one person, one vote situation when people view and align their allegiances by communities, when they vote as blocks, because then democracy becomes for the minority, who happen to be the ruling power, uh, a watchword simply for oppression by the majority. This is completely unattractive. Also, insofar as democracy is a desirable form of government for stability and not just to make us feel good, it, is, it depends on the ability of losers to become winners. Otherwise, losers have no reason or interest to subscribe to the system. Now, when the losers are a majority and have no reason to be, don't think they can become winners, they have little interest in subscribing to the system. But to reverse that and have a system in which you just change who the losers are and they will have no prospect of success, that is not a particularly attractive system to them. And in fact, it always, uh, I guess it doesn't astonish me, but I always find it perplexing that you get so much discussion of sort of one-man, one-vote democracy in a country where our own constitution is based on not having that. That the fundamental compromise of the Senate is to prevent one-man, one-vote domination of the United States by large states. And had we not been willing to make that compromise, we would not have had agreement on the Constitution. So you have a situation in Bahrain in which you have split communities. You have enormous suspicion. 
the idea that the two communities can now work this out with or without royal intervention is a hard one to see because there are lots of real reasons for suspicion. This is a sort of walking illustration of the old joke that even paranoids have real enemies. Uh, on the government side, you have the question of whether the opposition manifests democracy or religious theocracy and leadership. I can't answer that question. I know many very admirable, modest, moderate Shia personalities in the opposition who I think want democracy. But I've never seen one of them stand up to a single speech of Sheikhi Sakasim and suggest that they could oppose him and remain in politics. That doesn't answer the question that it will be a theocracy, but it, it leaves the question open in conditions of enormous, uh, enormous suspicion. On the Shia side, there is the fact which uh, uh, Ms. Whitson mentioned, that the reforms promised are not seen to be carried out. That leaves enormous suspicion on the other side. Now, it is true that some of them, like reform of the judiciary, are things which will take a lot of time. But some of them, on in terms of police control, just haven't really happened in a way that people can touch and feel. And that leaves the government in this odd position of, does it mean that they are not serious about undertaking the reforms, in which case one would not trust them to make new promises, or does it mean that they don't control their own people and their own forces, in which case the conclusion is the same. So you have this enormous suspicion. And in this condition of enormous suspicion, you have everybody wanting guarantees before moving. Uh, and that is a recipe for immobilism. Now, the Gulf states have rallied around the royal family and the Sunnis. And there is a large, I repeat, there is a large Sunni community which has become much more politicized than it ever was before, uh, and much more hostile to the Shia. It is not a majority, but it is significant. The Gulf states have rallied behind them. The, king, the Kingdom of Bahrain has the financial resources and the military support from the Gulf states that it will not lose. So what you have is a situation of stasis in which the government can maintain itself. It will not lose. It will not be overthrown. But it cannot restore stability through the means of force. The opposition has enough power and enough people and enough moral issues that it can sustain disruption almost indefinitely, but it cannot win. Now that is a classic situation for compromise, but compromise is enormously difficult when you have this kind of suspicion. It's easy to talk about compromise sitting off in America. It reminds me of the uh, story I heard years ago of an American businessman who went uh, to the Levant on his first trip and came back and said, I just don't understand why these Jews and Arabs can't solve this problem in a good Christian manner. Uh, uh, it, it's easy to, easier to talk about this from outside where you don't quite understand why folks are suspicious. Um, whether they can overcome this, I don't know. I, you're not seeing much progress in the dialogue 
And you're seeing rigidity on both sides. You're seeing the Shia opposition, and I will say the opposition is not all Shia, but it is predominantly Shia. You are seeing the Shia opposition demand a variety of promises on how any agreement will be carried out before it will agree to discuss substance. Um, that is born out of suspicion and probably out of a feeling of being in a very inferior position politically. The government has refused those concessions, insisting that it wants to talk about substance before it agrees what it's going to do about the substance. This reminds me a little bit of a situation I lived through in another part of the Middle East, which was the effort to go back to Geneva in the beginning of the Carter administration, where we focused on the agenda for about a year. The trouble was the agenda was always full of substance so that anything one put in the agenda was in fact tilting it to the political uh, values of political position of one side or the other. Um, and so I remember that the agenda kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And in the end, it was a few ticks on about half a sheet of paper before everybody gave up and they went to Camp David and went in a totally different direction. But the, uh, so I, I don't see this agenda dialogue of the opposition and the dialogue of the government really getting any place as long as they are hung up where they are. Um, so what can the U.S. do in this? In the end, I think one has to come back to the issue of U.S. policy. Recognizing that we do have an interest in that goes in different directions, but recognizing also that there is... There are two factors that are essential for Bahrain to come out of its problem. One is that there has to be a measure of reform. It is not, and I think most Bahrainis, or at least many Bahrainis on the government side, speak of these things in at least a general form of changing the representation in parliament, of getting more power within the other community, variety of things, variety of reforms that have to take place. On the other hand, reform in a situation of so much tension is not going to be total, and it's, it needs to be shaped in a way which also guarantees that reform is not simply a first stage to elimination. Otherwise, the government and the royal family have no interest in reform. Uh, it is a completely unpersuasive dialogue when it does not come with some notion that it has an end point as well as a beginning, uh, particularly in a region where people look at, see what happened to Mubarak, uh, they look at the instability of Iraq, they listen to their Iranian neighbors, they have a lot to be afraid of even if we think they shouldn't be, and I'm not so sure that they shouldn't be. Uh, so I agree that there is excess, but I also agree that there are real reasons for fear and there are real things to be afraid of. And that means that reform is going to have to be partial. And frankly, because the divide between the two communities is so deep, I believe that a strong monarchy is going to be required in order to act as a balance wheel between the two communities. Although I believe that the monarchy will have to be willing to play that role. If it only wants to play the role of one side, then it will not balance, but there will be no end to the problem. Um, in this situation, I personally would like to see the U.S. be a little clearer. Right now, we reap the worst of all worlds. We mouth reform, 
and we do nothing to press it. So we have managed now to alienate all sides in the debate. The government blames us for not being sufficiently supportive uh, of old friends and alliances. The opposition blames us for not supporting democracy. The Saudis and the rest blame us uh, for interfering too much and destabilizing the government. The result of all this unhappiness is not necessarily bad by itself. I mean, as a diplomat, I would say that sometimes you only know you've found the middle ground when everybody's yelling at you. But uh, in point of fact, we have alienated people to the point that we have significantly weakened our political effectiveness in Bahrain without having gotten anything for it. That, I think, is the loss. Um, and I don't think it is going to be repaired by saying that we're going to move out of the Gulf, we're going to move out of Bahrain, we're going to move the base. And frankly, when the issues are posed as survival by the king, the royal family, uh, and the Sunni community, I don't think any of those steps actually bring sufficient pressure to produce change. They will produce more of a hedgehog reaction of defensiveness and are therefore, I think, not particularly useful. Um, they may make you feel good, but I don't think they're very useful. Therefore, I think one needs a clearer policy where we talk about reform, but we also talk about the limits of reform. And we talk a little more about what reform both means and does not mean. Because if we are going to go back to pressing the government with something other than toothless gums to reform, we have to be able to say what that means. And we have to say what it does not mean. It does not mean the extinction of the royal family. Or if it does mean that, then that's a different policy. Uh, we also need to be clear with the opposition, because right now what one has is a situation in which there is a feeling that if one holds out long enough, presses the Congress, and makes it strictly an issue in American publicity of human rights and democracy, we will, the opposition can bring America to greater pressure on the government. So that by not being clear, I think we whet the appetite of the opposition not to close on a deal, and the fears of the government against closing. I don't think this serves any useful purpose except that it protects us from domestic criticism in the United States because our lines sound good. So personally, I think that we need more clarity about what we think would help. Um, but I think the situation is very difficult. The suspicions are so deep now, and the, the bitterness is so deep on both sides that I think one has to recognize that getting started again is going to be difficult. Um, and I suppose that's what keeps life interesting. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, 10,000 questions. Gavin um, uh, Effort will be to try to uh, group these questions in some kind of sequential uh, fashion uh, as pertains to the substance in the question there. Uh, first one is for uh, Sarah Whitson. There appeared to be a discomfort. <laughs> as seen in your body language while Dr. Sullivan was speaking. And my question is, how would you suggest the government embrace the minority population? And please be specific in economic terms. 
uh, and the flip side of the coin is how is the Shia element of the population uh, making efforts to engage the, the government? Uh, I guess in, in terms of discomforting uh, body language, uh, the reaction that I had was in an analogy of, well, what would the U.S. do if there was a mass popular uprising? Wouldn't the government just crush it? Remember, can't state. And actually, I remember we did have a mass popular uprising in America. It was called the American Revolution, and we know the outcome to that. And I think that's the more appropriate analogy. So the notion that King George might have been right in crushing American revolutionaries, uh, and, and that's the lesson we should take from that, is kind of odd, to say the least. Um, and I think I'm a little surprised generally, so my body language wasn't limited to that. You know, I, I had no idea so many Americans were monarchists who believed in a strong monarchy <laughs> and thought that, you know, and in fact, reforms should be limited. And, you know, I, I just wonder, you know, have we learned nothing from the past few years? Have we learned nothing? Forget about this sort of false dichotomy of human rights versus national interests. Let's only focus on national interests and flush human rights down the toilet. And really, I want to ask you, is it really a good strategic policy uh, to put all our eggs in the basket of a monarchy, an absolute monarchy, something that is some, you know, a relic of history that is on its way out? Let's face it, I mean monarchy uh, with a near absolute power. When we know that it is a minority government, it's not two sides with the monarchy in the middle. The monarchy is one side. It represents only the interests of the minority Sunni community uh, against the majority population. Is that really a good strategic plan for what we all agree are very important strategic interests of oil and gas and stability and Iran threats and dangers. And I really think that the question, that the answer to that is pretty obvious. I hope there's a plan B. I hope that not all our eggs are in the basket of Mr. Mubarak, and we saw what happened with our close relationship with him, uh, or uh, the basket of the Shah of Iran, and we saw what happened to him, uh, or the basket of any monarchy that is not representative of this population, and that has seen a mass popular uprising. It's just bad policy. Um, in terms of uh, you know the opposition, I guess I, I don't speak for the opposition. As, as you noted, they're they're a, a various uh, crews. Some of them are religious and conservative. Uh, some of them are communists. Some of them are secular. Uh, some of them are Sunni. Some of them are Shia. Uh, it, it's a mixed uh, uh, it's a mixed batch, and I don't think any one opposition voice speaks for all of the opposition. I know what the opposition leaders that I met told me. Um, which is, number one, the national dialogue process is a joke because our political leaders are in jail uh, and we are filling their seats, but we are not going to believe in a reform process so long as our political leaders, whom the Basuni Commission uh, urged uh, the release of, remain in jail. You cannot have a political dialogue while the opposition is in jail, Mr. Obama said, President Obama said. Uh, uh, number two, they think that the, a bit of the farce has been, the, again, the monarchy uh, at first saying, well, we want to bring the Sunni opposition and the Shia opposition together for talks, but we're not going to be part of the talks. I mean, that's where the last couple of months has been wasted, unfortunately, not just about what the outcomes will be, but just getting the, the monarchy to the table as part of uh, this so-called dialogue. Uh, and I don't think we've seen real resolution in that, but, you know, it's it's nice to pretend that the, that the monarchy is sort of this independent sort of semi-godly thing that's going to uh, peacefully bring these communities together, but people don't buy that in, in, uh, in, in Bahrain. In fact, people don't buy it anywhere. 
Well, what's clear with, with every situation we've seen around the world where you have a minority community uh, ruling the majority of a population, uh, whether it's South Africa, whether it's Connecticut, wherever you want to look, uh, is that it doesn't last and it's unstable. Um, so, again, dumping the moral questions of putting all our eggs in a monarchical basket, I, I'd suggest it's just bad strategy. John Duke, I have to respond to that. Paul. Um, oh. First of all, I'm not a monarchist. Uh, I have a Scots-Irish background, and if anyone knows about that, we had a little bit of a problem with uh, monarchies in, in the past. And I was not saying putting all of our eggs in one basket. I'm not sure where you got that from. What I did mention in the beginning is we need to get each side to get to yes. We had serious problems in this country in the 1960s. And 1950s, and you go back even further, there were places where only whites could drink out of water fountains. And now we have Barack Hussein Obama as a president. There are ways to move forward. And the ways to move forward are not to have sharper and sharper distinctions and blaming everyone around you, but to find some kind of middle ground. It seems I was misunderstood. Um, second question here. How can the U.S. apply pressure to the Bahraini government to enact reforms which the majority of the population want? Uh, second question, a third question rather, does the human rights message, does America's human rights message in the Arab world get confused by America's perceived bias by Arabs to the Israeli-Palestinian peace process and situation? One, one of the questions was uh, using the example of all of the America's uh, energy expressed in support of one Israeli <coughs> prisoner um, by the Palestinians versus at times in the last half decade as many as 10,000 Palestinian uh, prisoners by Israel including a number of whom were democratically, peacefully, legitimately elected to be the political representatives of the Palestinians. Who would like to take this on? I've got to backtrack first, though, and apply the same disclaimer that Dr. Sullivan made to me. Although I don't, I don't speak, I don't have any connection with Georgetown. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's a false dichotomy between interests and values. We have to promote human rights, and we have to promote our interests. Um, if we just have a hard-nosed, security-driven approach, uh, then we ride into the ground with the Shah of Iran. We've done that once. Uh, and that's why diplomacy and security is tough work. If there was a set of fixed rules you follow every time, then you could train a chicken to do it. Um, but you, know, you have to have educated people who are brought up through a career that rewards excellence, 
that rewards initiative, that encourages and fosters good thinking, and allows you to deal with these complex situations. And then, inshallah, you manage it carefully over a period of years, and you can make the right decision and the right trade-offs. I would argue that some of our policy in Bahrain is frustrating, not because of what you see in the newspapers, which is look at the base and then assume that our policy has done that, but rather it reflects a um, fundamental uh, discord within the structure of the U.S. government. Uh, so, for example, uh, when we made the decision to stop the export of the tow missiles and the Humvees to the Bahrainis, uh, first off, that, that was not reached as a result of a coordinated position in the U.S. government. It was parts within the U.S. government exerting their prerogatives to hold up a sale in order to support our human rights goal. The practical effect of that was the Bahrain government turned around and said, fine, bought armored vehicles from the Turks, which were actually more capable of navigating through <laughs> the villages where they're going in, dousing them in tear gas uh, if they so desire. And they did it without any U.S. government uh, input or end-use conditions and things of that. But that being said, we have done these things in the past. You know, uh, Dr. Sullivan talks about the, six, about the 60s and the 70s. In the, in the 60s and the 70s, Quebec was under martial law for a period of time. Uh, Chile was not a democracy. Most of Latin America was not a democracy. And I don't want to sound too much like Jeannie Kirkpatrick, but we managed to engage with those countries and over a period of time foster them. And I think everybody agrees that's what our goal is here. So the focus of my remarks here is do not buy into the false dichotomy. You've got to do both. We're the U.S. government. We have to do everything. There's no excuse. You don't want to do everything, be Luxembourg, sit on the side, and complain about things. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the uh, sharpest insults one might get in the Arab world is to be called Bushin, two-faced. It's very difficult to build and retain trust. Trust walks slowly toward a person and goes away in a supersonic jet once mistakes are made. We have to be clear, we have to be consistent, we have to build long-term relations. Often our people are in our embassies for two or three years at the most, and then they go to Indonesia or someplace like that from, from Egypt. There's no real development of long-term relations that should be done, maybe by the retired ambassadors that happens. Trust is a huge issue. And I guess they're having other vote. Uh, we have to use soft and hard power. Uh, I agree with uh, Dave on that. Uh, we can't uh, be the nice guys all the time when we're threatened. But at the same time, we have to learn a lot more about soft power. And I don't mean coin, because that didn't exactly work, now did it? Okay. Um, why, when it comes to the Middle East and North Africa region, do we talk of majority rule in terms of religion? or sex within a specific uh, religion. I think we need another yardstick, is the view of the person who asked that question. Related to it is um, Ms. Whitson characterized the number of graduates of American schools as an example of a thin elitism. This is an outdated stereotype. How does 
she reconciled this perspective with the fact that many of the students who attend these schools, especially American University in Cairo, Lebanese, Arab uh, University, and American University in Beirut, are not from the elite, but from the lower socioeconomic rungs of their societies. Yes. Uh, I guess uh, just to clarify, uh, I'm, I'm all for uh, everybody in the world getting the benefit of an American university education. I, I think that American university educations are fantastic things. Um, my comment was uh, the reference to uh, our relationship with people in the government uh, who had uh, American university educations. And I caution against uh, seeing that as a basis of establishing a real relationship uh, with the Bahraini people. Uh, uh, so that, that, was, that was the only point. I mean, in fact, you know, the, the more inter-education there is, uh, the better off uh, everyone, I think, uh, will be because then you'll have a sharing of views and a sharing of understanding. So my comment was, was specific to, to that point and just goes again uh, to thinking about who our alliances are really with and how reliable those alliances are uh, and cautioning against alliances uh, with uh, undemocratic uh, uh, repressive uh, regimes. Uh, Ambassador Newman would like to respond. Well, you know, I totally agree that it would be lovely if we were able to address political divisions on grounds other than religious communities. In some places you can. It's not one issue everywhere. But the issue of communities has become unfortunately sharper rather than uh, lessening in a good piece of the Arab world. Uh, now some of that is bringing into focus things that were already there. There is a, in Iraq, there was a frequently repeated statement that actually in the old days we really were all one people and this Shia Sunni stuff really wasn't important. I remember one Shia politician saying to me when he had mildly protested that at a conference in London that he would not have felt socially free to do even that much protesting had he been in Iraq, but then he in fact went on in a private conversation to recount how when he was growing up he felt that his uh, religion was being suppressed. So that there was the view of the golden age um, was I think predominantly a Sunni view in countries where you had mixed populations. The issue there is one of how people structure their political actions, not how we want to put them into boxes. I would be delighted if they would put themselves in somewhat different boxes. Let me just go back there and clarify two other points. Um, first of all, I do not think the answer to policy is obvious. I think it's a great line. I kind of thought that Ms. Winston and I would probably end up on different sides in this question. Um, but I don't think it is, it is nearly that obvious. We could probably have a long debate about that. I do not believe that absolute monarchy is an answer, nor do I believe that Bahrain can find any stability by the monarchy taking an absolute position, nor did I indicate that I thought the monarchy was neutral. What I did say is that the monarchy is going to have to establish a position of much greater neutrality in order to get itself out of this. Right now, the monarchy has a problem. King Hamad has publicly accepted 
the recommendations of the Basili Commission. Some of the most important of those recommendations, I agree, are not seen to have been carried out. This leaves the king, who I personally like, in the difficult position that if he does not exercise some authority over his own people, he leaves the question of whether he did not mean to exercise it or whether he is not capable of exercising it. Both answers are bad if he wants anybody to agree to do anything else with it. That is a real problem. So I think that, the, on the one hand, that the monarchy needs to find a great deal more neutrality. But I do not think the answer of you just go with the people is actually a very stable or useful policy. But Now, we will disagree on that, and so I won't go on in this, but the point is, what you've seen in Iraq is communal breakdown and a great deal of violence. You have a lot of potential for more violence, not necessarily for resolution, if you simply move, change sides in Bahrain. You also have a place where I don't think you can make it work, which is a separate question from whether you ought to do it. I, I think we, you know, we, we will have the argument over whether you ought to do it. But the fact is that the physical and financial support from the other Gulf states, and particularly from Saudi Arabia, are not going to allow the Shia majority to govern Bahrain. And you can get there, you cannot get there with a lot of blood, or you can get to a degree of compromise, a degree of yes, and a substantial degree of reform and more rights for that community through dialogue, but I don't think you can get there through force. So we may disagree on what is possible uh, as well as what is uh, obvious or desirable. Uh, this question uh, is for you, Ambassador Newman. I saw that one. Somebody wrote it before I spoke. Um, <laughs> for you, Ambassador Newman, but I invite the other uh, panelists, speakers, uh, to intervene on it as well. What is the future of the Gulf Shield Force and the new Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Uh, but for those unfamiliar with the Gulf Shield Force, and uh, at the GCC Heads of State Summit in Kuwait in 1984, uh, the six countries agreed that an attack on one would be an attack on all six, and they committed to a multinational force in northwestern Saudi Arabia, close to Kuwait, uh, as a symbol and signal of deterrence against uh, Iran. So what, what is the future of that? Um, and then the, would you comment on the implications uh, for <coughs> American interest uh, and policies on the following comment, that um, the United States uh, invaded uh, Iraq and Iran won. And even before that, uh, in terms of the United States intervention in Afghanistan. Um, you can argue that Iran partially won there as well. So um, the implications of what we have been doing uh, rhetorically in, in support of uh, support for the salt power democratization and political uh, pluralism. And uh, is it not ironic that the Constitution, that the U.S. bequeath the Iraqis a 
resemble somewhat more the Israeli uh, body politic and constitution than any other in the Arab world with the possibility of uh, Lebanon being an exception. John, that's not a question, that's a seminar. <laughs> but um, a couple of comments. Okay. The Isla Shield has never been a particularly effective force. Um, it is a balance between a desire to defend externally and suspicions internally within the various different states. Um, it did it shown at its brightest in the after the first Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, where the force was fielded and did fight in the first war. It has never fully integrated. It does best when the United States serves as the organizing body within the force, because everybody's reasonably comfortable trusting us with their air defense picture and other things. It has never gotten real far in integrating forces, weapons, and command if we are out of it. And that's been a 20-year process, at least, if not now 30, I guess. So I, what Peninsula Shield has shown and it's really more Saudis and UAE particularly, is that it is prepared to support Bahrain, uh, that it is prepared to be part of the drawing together of the Gulf monarchies to resist the winds of the Arab spring, summer, winter, whatever it is. Um, it, that's not a value statement. That's just an analytical judgment of what they have done. Whether that is, how significant that will be in any given situation is going to be dependent on the country. It's very significant in Bahrain because the country is very small, very open to Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's not very significant if the Saudis are dealing with problems in Qatif and Hufuf because it's a much larger country with a different balance of power. I don't think you're going to see Peninsula Shield going to court. So it's very situationally dependent. Um, did Iraq, in, uh, did Afghanistan, uh, sorry, did Iran in the end profit from our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes, obviously. It removed the threats, the threat it felt from two sides, uh, and it left it a greater diplomatic mobility. It produced other threats and problems in turn, but overall it is probably seen as uh, being better off. I don't really think that the constitution we bequeathed the Iraqis is particularly influenced by the uh, by the Israelis. Uh, I, was, I was not a deep, deep part of that, but I was there when Bremer and the Transitional Council were negotiating that agreement. And the good news out of that agreement was that it really came out of a lot of compromising and pulling and tugging between the parties. The bad news was that there were 25 parties in the room and it excluded the rest of the 30-odd million Iraqis who had no part in that agreement. and or in making any of the compromises. Um, but I, I think it was much more of a multi-party process in which Bremer played a large role, but so did a variety of Iraqi parties there than uh, that it was something we imposed. But what one does see in Iraq, and it's, you want to be careful with trying to transfer any lesson from one country to another country and thinking that is therefore a <coughs> So far, democracy is not really working in Iraq. 
people have come out of a zero-sum culture. There's a huge amount of violence. There are individual groups that stir up the violence when others might. It has not completely failed, but it has not moved out of blood and sectarianism. And that's a very, just a very long process. And I don't know if they'll get there or if they'll go back to dictatorship. Uh, but I can tell you, having watched the early days of the parliament in Bahrain and the parliament in Iraq and the parliament in Afghanistan uh, and the one in Algeria when it was newly formed, reformed after uh, 95, that a great deal of what we regard as normal political behavior and compromise and how to get things done, although we have a little less of that these days in Washington, um, is not intuitive behavior. It is learned behavior. Uh, and it takes a, a surprisingly long time to learn it. I think one of the, I think there was, before the demonstrations, there was a period of progress in which the parliament was moving forward in Bahrain, and some of this behavior was coming into force, a focus, uh, and that was a period in which you had the second parliament, Nawafak, decided to move back in. Interesting commentary, though, when El Wafak decided we enter Parliament, it insisted that every Shia deputy who had won a seat in Parliament before had to go because they were not El Wafak members, which is something that says something about party discipline. Um, that really ended with period of electoral fraud, with a lot of different things that diminished the confidence in democracy. The, the argument that the government and the monarchy would like to make is that reform is a long process and give us a little space to do it. The counter-argument is that the space has not been occupied of late, that there is, it's got to show more movement. It's got to show some movement to begin, and it's got to show more movement. In order to have confidence in that, um, that's a much harder process to push from inside or outside uh, than some of the other things, but it's a long question, and I do work to John, back to you. All right, thank you. I have more questions, of course, than could be put, uh, let alone answered, in, in the uh, succinct time that we have remaining, which uh, we are at the end. There was a question, um, why not, why did we not have Bahraini speakers why did we not have Saudi Arabian speakers? Yes, we um, we invited uh, both, um, and representatives of each said, look, um, we are, at least those who are here officially, are bound, uh, constrained more by policies and official positions and actions and attitudes than, than most are aware. We think the richer results in a more animated and lively and uh, truthful conversation would likely come from individuals who would meet the criteria of uh, being objective, uh, being detached, and uh, not intricately or personally or intimately uh, being linked to the issues. Of course, it's a shortcoming that we haven't had actual real-life Bahrainis, actual real-life Saudi Ravens. Uh, but uh, we have this room only for a limited uh, period of time. 
and uh, we tried to get as much diversity and candor and forthrightness and clarity uh, as possible. And I hope we've at least partially achieved that with the four we have. And so this uh, meeting is adjourned. Thank you.